welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. We're going to walk through the biggest questions thoughtfully and honestly, getting back to the roots of philosophy so that we can use wisdom and knowledge to actually live a better life. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, um, yeah, we're back with the second instalment of Philosophy AU, here again with Mr. Donny Don Purcell. Hello, Joshua. Um, cool, welcome back. So, I guess last time we spoke about, uh, well, probably spoke about a lot, we spoke a bit of an introduction about like what your, sort of what your goals are with um, TT. <coughs> And uh, we spoke a lot about rationality, touch on animals. Uh, and I guess like today we're probably wanting to circle around a bit and hover around maybe ethics, meta-ethics, living a good life. Uh, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Um, I let... Fuck, hang on. <laughs> Yes, those all those all sound like good topics. Um, potentially, maybe like a, a useful starting point would be uh, just a conversation we we're just having previously before recording about like the role of fiction in helping us sort of cut through some of these things. And we were speaking about the mm. specific example of uh, in the second Hitchhikers to the Galaxy book. Um, there is a, a scene where basically a, a conscious uh, cow can basically give permission for humans or other creatures to eat it. And mm. at that point, it is considered weird. Like, no one wants to eat an, a cow that can talk and say, no, it's fine, eat me. Um, <laughs> so, I guess we were sort of... We, we, there's a couple of points tied into that, but... One is obviously like fiction is useful for helping us cut through some of these possible biases that we have when analysing these situations because you can just like dial up a variable or turn it down. Mm. And yeah, I just thought that maps onto like previous discussion um, quite well. So maybe we could start there. And if not, then I've wasted five minutes. (laughs) You mean start there with the animals? Yeah, or just like maybe that concept and then... Yeah, good point. So, yeah, that, yeah, like, blew my mind a little bit when you said it. Uh, Because, yeah, it is very, very true and it highlights, highlights the inconsistency. Maybe not inconsistency would be the right word, but um, maybe it shines a light on where the thinking goes wrong around like why people say they don't want to eat animals because um, yeah I guess there I guess there it's saying that it's the consciousness that is <coughs> is is it the consciousness that that's the reason that that doesn't feel good yeah I think 
maybe consciousness isn't quite the right word, but I think it it is c- kind of close to the mark. It's just like mm. this, yeah, sentient, or it's like this thing has some kind of will of its own. Like mm. it, once you perceive it to have some kind of will, and even if it, even if its will maps onto what your will is. Mm you don't think it's right for that thing to have that will. So that's kind of why it's weird. But it's like, I guess what the example does, or at least to me, was was demonstrated. It's like, we can probably be pretty sure that cows do have will and or consciousness, as you kind of mentioned, and that they don't want to be eaten. So that when when you take the example of one that basically now just has language abilities and does want to be eaten. And we consider that weird. Like it's probably the same sort of like thinking should apply regardless of whether a cow can or can't talk. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, like the will, I'm thinking will and preferences, but um, preferences comes out. Well, again, like I think Peter Singer talks about preferences come out just in the ability to experience pain and experience pleasure. So he says that like that's all you need to have a preference. Um, And given that you have that preference, that should give you, that should put you on equal footing with like other sentient beings, i.e. humans. And that people's thinking about animals is inconsistent because we obviously give other humans um, weight or importance or moral superiority because they have these preferences, but really animals have the exact same preferences. By preferences, all, all it means is the ability to suffer and not suffer. Therefore, you have a preference to not suffer. Uh, and yeah, I, it, like I guess the the language aspect shouldn't matter. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I guess what you're saying there is like maybe maybe we could leave the door open to le- well taking Peter Singer's argument that it's like animals have preferences and that should put them on equal footing with humans. You know, let's let's give him half of that and say like animals do have preferences but leave the door ajar for saying like, well, there might be, there's incremental differences. Like potentially they don't experience things to the same extent, whatever. Like we can hold that, um, hold that aside for the moment. But like we are probably, we are categorically accepting that they do have preferences. Yeah. Like that's that's sort of like that's just a tick box really it's just like yes they tick that box like sure we can argue to which extent they do have them um or how much like their experience of them matters Mm. um so yeah i guess i was just ensuring we're on the same page there yeah Yeah. just like clear up one small bit like it's it's not that it's not right to put them on equal footing as humans. And I don't think anyone serious tries to do that. It, like, 
Okay, so like the classic example is like, oh, well, like you're going to value a cow as much as you value your own child. Like the the comparison isn't to put them on equal footing. It's just, um, I guess a simple way to put it is their lives should be worth more than your taste buds. So it's not, the trade-off isn't between a human life and an animal life. The trade-off is between an animal life and your convenience or your taste buds or like, a couple of dollars or minutes. So I guess, yeah, I just wanted to clear up that point that the point is not that there is as valuable and, and as equal. Like I still recognize and I think most thoughtful people who are conscious of these ideas recognize that there is a different valuing but that people very heavily undervalue them. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of I think that is a useful addition. Um, to a degree, it's it's kind of asking like, well, maybe maybe I'll lead with a slightly separate uh, example. Like, you know, there's probably an upper limit to how much you know you're willing to pay to save a life. It's like, well, like clearly there is like because there's lives can be saved by donating and, and things like that. But like. Mm. You know, say if you're guaranteed to save a life, it's just like, you know, will you would you pay five hundred dollars? Well, yeah, say probably a thousand, maybe who knows? Mm. Like whatever. There's a number mm. that when we sort of take the human element out of it and sort of consider uh, animal welfare, it, it really is kind of more of like a lower threshold. It's just like what's the sort of like minimum mm. like inconvenience you're willing to go through to or like maximum inconvenience or whatever. Like, I'm not sure what the sort of the right terminology is, but it's mm. like conceptually it's very the same, but sort of like in practical terms, it's like, it's different. It's just like maybe just walking down a, a, a different aisle in the supermarket um, and telling your friends that like, oh, I don't eat meat now. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, the st- like the life-saving element is there, but it's just doesn't probably come along with the, like the feeling of heroism, heroism, mm. heroism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could be a word. <laughs> could be a word. Um, that yeah, potentially like paying a thousand dollars to save a life does. Mm. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting point. Like we won't go too far away from this, but just um, that, like, oh gosh, I think I'm losing it. That why you're doing the thing, or like, does so, were you saying that uh, people are more inclined to do the donation thing because it feels my, like more of a heroic act? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I think we can make better sense of it, maybe. Uh, mm. it, it just seems a little, little more clear-cut, possibly. Um To like to be more likely or more likely to do it, I'm not like yeah maybe in a you know in when confronted with the question on a test sort of thing in a really mm. isolated example, but it's it's not like people are running out with you know wads of you know hundred dollar notes and stuff like that being like here I'm going to save mm. lives. It's like there isn't a stampede for that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure. 
rot what the right terminology would be, but I guess all I'm saying is I think it just we think something makes a difference when it it has just a more precise and clear cut result. Yeah. Um we look for we like, I guess, seeing that clarity between cause and effect. Whereas mm. like maybe maybe it's maybe it's this. It's just like the act of not doing something and that having a positive outcome is is difficult in this regard. Okay. Where it, feel free to say more about that. But yeah, like I guess the like there is an act of saving a life, but what possibly like animal welfare really comes down to is the the non-act of hmm. taking an animal's life. Hmm. And that's, yeah, that's different, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So like the not doing some, like people maybe, it could be a fair generalization to say that people are less motivated to not act, even if it's going to be good rather than to act or good uh and yeah like i was just saying covid is probably the perfect example like to ab- abide by the rules and save lives quote unquote you basically had to do nothing which was really hard for people i guess um what i was gonna ask was like or maybe a couple of options and take it where you want like what do you think it takes for people to do good along a similar vein like why do you think that a lot of people don't recognize the animal problem or don't act on it? Maybe I'll just like preface it by saying like, I'm always curious by the amount of people that say they understand the animal problem, but they don't do anything about it. Like in the, the small number of times that I've, spoken about it to other people because i don't don't want to be an annoying person but like they've always said oh yeah you know that's so good i get it you know i love animals but i could never do it um i'm always interested by that contradiction so like i'm interested what do you think it takes to do good or perhaps and why do you think people don't act on the animal issue even when they understand it I guess at, like, the sort of, the root level, like, everyone needs to have some kind of, like, explanation for their behavior and just, like, to be okay with um, what they do in the world. And, like, that, the tool of cognitive dissonance helps Mm. with that, Um, you know, sort of in one component of someone's psychology, they, they think they have like and not sort of just like taking the word think like lightly like they genuinely believe they have animal welfare sort of interests and they are a caring person um whereas in sort of a different component of their mind they enjoy steak and whatever all the rest of things um so i guess this is a there's nothing novel about the fact that we struggle to perceive our own biases and someone else can perceive them relatively easily. Um, So with that said, it's 
someone could certainly critique, you know, if you're like spending a lot of time thinking about the animal problem, like someone is probably standing there watching going, yeah, cool. That's a really like, um, you know, they could make the argument like that's a very privileged problem to be like thinking about. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, by no means am I suggesting you've had tremendous amounts of privilege, but it's like obviously like that's, you know, that is something like... Um, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. Yeah, that's... I don't. I don't know. That's that was probably the end of my yeah. train of thought there. Um, so feel free to jump in. Yeah, like I am definitely very sympathetic to that argument of because, like, so when I think about my own evolution of thinking about these ideas and caring, but more importantly, acting on these ideas, it's like we were talking about before. Um, you know, I firmly believe that, like, okay, it's probably once you get to like the median salary or median income in your country, then it's probably some sort of obligation to start doing something. Um, and that's pretty well how I've thought about it and acted. Like I haven't really started to do anything until this year, which was when I sort of hit around that mark with my own income. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. Like I probably was just, you know, um, pissing around a little bit younger and now I'm getting quote-unquote getting on in my 20s to uh, start to think about more serious things. Um, but yeah, I'm interested uh, as to like the priorities and the point of life you sort of get to to start to actually act. I think there's a well-established idea with the environment as well and the... Uh, the correlation with GDP, it's like as a, as a country or nation state gets more high GDP, they start to care about the environment more. I think that does map onto this and make a bit of sense. Like on a personal level, I think like as you start to earn more, one, you probably should start to give or give more. And, but more importantly, like you have the resources in terms of less stress to start to think about these issues. It's like if the, uh, what's the saying? It's like if the if the barn's on fire, you're not thinking about the next season's crop or something like that. You know, you're trying to put out the fire, not trying to plant crops. Um, so I think going back to the question of what does it take for a person to give? I think it takes to be in the right spot personally but another thing I've been thinking about is um, your like personal dispositions or like personal uh, proclivities to do things so like myself I've always been quite a caring person obviously you're the same I can tell that in terms of a, uh, a division of labor thing of society I think we if we already have that disposition we have more of an obligation to exploit that. Whereas I think other people that don't really have that disposition, maybe it's like more okay for them to not worry about it. So I do think about that. Like if you, if you're, if you are the type of person that has these thoughts, 
then it's very much a okay like society's relying on that subsector of people to do this stuff yeah i really like that train of thought um it's definitely something i've considered quite a lot um not applied to that problem specifically but like personal proclivities and how they how they sort of bring about your own purpose but sort of like the obligations you have to the rest of society Mm. um so let me sort of a few things to touch on there i think the general rule of once you surpass or like arrive at or surpass median income like of the milestones there are um to do good like because i guess that's that's one of the difficulties we face it's like when is the time to do good like mm. yeah now is the time to do good but it's like it's not always convenient mm. so like signposting some of these things is really important because it helps take out some of that like spatial in awareness that we have it's like we need we need a kind of reference point i guess because like we always have some kind of explanation for why our life is the way it is we always have a list of things that are like inconveniencing us it's like oh now's not the time because i just had to like replace the engine or transmission in my Mm. car or it's like the kids are about to go through high school like um the thirds on the way like that kind of stuff so yes i think like absolute kind of like signposts are very useful um as you said so median income um do you agree with that by the way just quickly as the reference point yeah, or like, you know, obviously it's, I don't think of it as like a hard and fast rule. There's heaps of context that would come into it. But I feel like it's a good proxy. Yeah, no, yeah. That I guess I was agreeing with sort of like the entire concept. Like for me personally, it was very much the same. Um, by no means am I the most charitable person and I could give more. Like I can like readily admit that, which is like absolutely stupid. But That's the trap, hey? Um but once I worked out that essentially like I was within the wealthy 50% of Australians as opposed Mm. to the, and like, as you said, it's like we're by no means driving around BMWs and stuff like that. Like, you know, Uh, from and everyone like (laughs) well and truly would be looked down upon by not only like, proper adults but like people our age like are earning well and truly more than us um so yeah like in financial terms by no means have we made it but Mm. in like my own personal perception of my finance it's like i feel like i have made it enough Mm. that it would be semi-irresponsible of me to not start using some of that charitably so Mm. Um, yeah, without sort of derailing that too much, like we've spoken about how like automating these things can be really useful. It's like I can be in a shit of a mood 29 days out of 30 and not have to worry about like whether donations are going to take place because I've just automated it. Like mm. I just essentially had to say be in, you know, a charitable mood for one day of a month to set up a direct debit and it's taken care of from that point. Mm. Unless I find myself in such an uncharitable mood that i cancel it but like that's 
that then has some kind of activation threshold, that behavior that's, yeah. um, I guess, hardish to reach. So, yeah, I like that concept. Um, what I'll then say is, let me ask this, like, because I, I do agree with your point about, I think, say, once you're in the wealthy majority and earning above median wage or income and you start talking about uh, sort of more liberal problems or get like even some of just the general criticism that's leveraged uh, leave it against or levied levied against I think is the word I was looking for um, you know people who go to more liberal schools who are better off um, economically the privilege kind of argument may be part of the burden to bear for that position mm. is is having the privilege argument you know thrown at you and then still being willing to sort of like think about the environment to yeah it's like there there's a cost to it i guess like mm. so like sorry the the point that i'm kind of making is like maybe we have got the correct sort of like symbiotic relationship um where uh people who are less well off financially are you know allowed to sort of focus on their more shorter term needs mm. and things like that well obviously like hopefully governments are still helpful and the right political candidates are elected to make that easier for them but the argument that it's a privileged position to be in to then be thinking about animals and the environment that is that's still the right thing to be doing like you need mm. some people looking at the short term as well as the long term i guess mm. like even if there are still people suffering um yeah I'm, I'm not sure of how much of that was coherent but yeah so i think like a couple of things so you're saying that uh like you part of it is dealing with those criticisms like part of taking on this role per se is dealing with the and they might be irrational criticisms of the privilege argument like part of that you've just got to take on and um no, maybe let me try and clarify this maybe mm. what i'm saying is maybe what i'm saying is <laughs> <laughs> i i think this is what i'm saying but you know it'd probably take three hours after we've had this conversation for me to work it out. Hmm. I think what I'm saying is the criticism is rational, but so is the behavior of, of the, us. yeah. Like the people in say, yeah. Saying, Oh, your ability to think about hmm. animal rights and the environment is, is a privilege. Hmm. I think that is a fair argument, hmm. but I, don't think a fair argument or that fair argument is enough to derail the, like, yeah, I guess that that's mm. what I'm saying. Like, sort of, that is the burden to bear. You need to be able to tolerate that that is a fair argument mm. and you still should not cave, possibly. Mm. Like, yeah. yeah, there probably are cases, like, where you should cave and be like, oh, yeah, wow, there are more important things I could be worrying about. But, like, 
as you mentioned, like someone needs to think about these sort of things. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like again, like coming back to the A type of division of labor is division of labor of what to care about and like sort of what you're speaking about there is, yeah, again, if you're in that bottom 50% or God forbid, like the worst off in society, um, it's really not going to make sense for you to be <laughs> for you to be caring about climate change or animals. Like again, like your barn is on fire. You got to put out that fire. Like you got to put food on your table. Um, similarly, in the top fifty percent, there has to be people th- one thinking about their welfare, but also two thinking about the welfare of future people. Three thinking about the welfare of. Uh, yeah, again, like animals or I just think it, I guess what I'm getting to is I think it's uh, maybe not irrational, but I think it, I think it's unproductive to be criticizing, um, do I think that, is it unproductive to be criticizing different types of um, or focusing on different things to care about? Like, it's it's quite unproductive to be like, oh, you're, like, only caring about animals or the environment because you're in the top 50%. Um, whereas, like, again, like, one, someone has to do it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a whole lot of coherent thought there. Yeah, I guess, like, Maybe I'll try a slightly different strand of thought. Um, one, is it possibly a rationalization? Just like the phrase, someone has to do it. It's like, mm. really, what evidence have we presented that someone has to do it? Mm. So that that needs to be considered. Two, do you think it is possibly a rationalization as well that when we think about these problems, let's take the environment because that's like we are going to think, okay, say there's, say 40% of the human population currently we could deem as suffering. Mm. Um, And by choosing to preference the environment problem, um, just for the sake of thought experiment, like this mm. isn't necessarily how we feel, but um, for sake of yeah conversation, let's say we are choosing to privilege the the environment problem. We then kind of like rationalize that by saying, well, yes, 40% are currently suffering now and we could be focusing on the problem of, um, you know, disease, hunger, homelessness. But by focusing on sort of the longer term future, from a utilitarian perspective, like we're actually influencing many more generations of people, Mm. Um, you know, 40% on top of 40% on top of 40%. Um, However, I I think like there is utilitarian grounds for that, but maybe just coming back to sort of, I'm not convinced, I think utilitarianism is a very useful principle for making in more informed philosophical decisions mm. but on a sort of personal psychology basis I'm not sure how much it actually plays in and I think there is a large 
aspect of it where it's harder to deal with human suffering. Like it, it's easier to sort of focus on the more abstract problem of the environment of animal welfare because you're just not as confronted by what like human suffering, like suffering that you can relate to looks like. Like, hmm. you know. So you, are you saying, just a question, are you saying that it's maybe, yeah, like you said, a justification or a bias to focus on those more abstract ideas because we don't want to deal with like the suffering because of the bad feeling it gives us. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess like, um, yeah, it's like, say we, we've somehow arrived at this decision conclusion behavior that we want to do some kind of good. Um, but say like, you know, two doors down, there's a grieving widow, but it, and it's kind of like, oh, mm. I'd rather like set up a donation to, you know, some animal welfare organization than like go and sit with Mrs. Jones, who's just going to cry for two hours. And it's like, I'm going to feel horrible afterwards. Yeah. Like that may actually do her some good. And like, that is say good, but like the, I think, the salience of human suffering makes us, I guess what I'm saying is I think it takes stronger people than, than me to deal with human suffering. Like I, I think Mm. that's an element of it. Like I don't think I'm resilient enough to deal with a lot of human based problems. Yeah. That opens up some interesting doors. I mean, like I feel like we're dancing around effective altruism here. And again, that's, a little bit what I was hinting at with the division of labor, because that's a big part of the effective altruism community, is the people that have, again, the, the certain proclivities or affinities towards certain things, the certain resources or the certain skill sets should, I guess, triage or maximize where those points meet do the best good that they can and that's obviously going to be different for different people so it probably speaks to what you were saying then it's a perfect example like <laughs> you you may not be the best person to comfort mrs jones <laughs> you'd be like mrs jones did you hear there's a really good book about <laughs> about grief you should read it see ya <laughs> um no you're actually <laughs> little tangent but you're actually like surprisingly I'm not surprised by it, but like uh, you're actually really good interpersonally, which maybe you wouldn't think given like, uh, I don't know, some of your other characteristic traits. Like, do you ever get taken aback by how good you are interpersonally? We won't go too far down this rubber I have no model of how I am interpersonally. (laughs) I've always thought that about you. Like, um, and that's the beauty of having these conversations. Like, this would probably never come up. Uh, Yeah, that like you're with all your other, uh, I guess, like, characteristics and traits, like, you're actually one of the better people, like, with people. It's crazy. Yeah, see, I, I'm not sure how I feel about that claim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just take it yeah, off. Prob- yeah, probably, like, I appreciate that, like, that 
I think you're a very good people person. Um, so I'm not sure if what we're just seeing here is like friendship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're both, we're just good with each other, it turns yeah. out. <laughs> we ship with everyone else. Like, I think we might be extrapolating from N equals one here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with that said, like, sort of all jokes aside, maybe for like the sake of being explicit, mm. like, Like when you talk, you talk about personal characteristics, is like a lot of the things that I do might be found on some kind of autism Asperger's spectrum, mm. and like you know it, it is a spectrum. So like people, you know yourself, you have behaviours that fall on it. But um, yeah, I guess I'm very much characterised as kind of like an introvert, like with low, low emotional IQ, like poor theory of mind, and um, obsessive interests. So. Yeah, that's the kind of the personal characteristics that we're hinting about, obviously. At, uh, maybe like, I'm not sure if this is a personal justification, but I am a little bit open to the idea that like human, my, my unwillingness to engage in emotions to a significant extent is because I've feel like they feel overwhelming for me like hmm. i yeah I, I guess this is i'm not sure how productive this is because it's just going to be me trying to work out like what i think about myself and how i fit into the world but like it's difficult for me to work out like if i'm not interested in mrs jones's emotions or if like my ability to experience mrs jones's emotions like is so severe that like that is why I'm avoidant of it. Yeah, I think uh so did oh have you read Quiet Susan Cain's? Yep. Yeah, like that's largely what she talks about and that is that was an amazing book like because it gave some like rational justification to the feelings that I'd felt and no doubt you're quite similar with that experience that she talked about that introverts are physiologically more sensitive. That's why they are introverts. So, for example, like I definitely noticed this with me. I'm way sensitive to light, like at night. Um, and I feel like I've been this way for quite a few years. Like I just can't handle really bright lights. Um, and anyway, the example is like introverts will tend to be overstimulated from the same amount of stimulus or they will get overstimulated from the same amount of stimulus as opposed to an extrovert. So an extrovert needs more of the same thing to feel the same amount of whatever, X. Um, a weird example is like <laughs> Miley Cyrus was talking about how she would have to take so many drugs because she was a child performer because like coming off stage and getting all those quote-unquote like natural endorphins and then if she wanted to party, she had to like kick it up 10 notches. Um, so anyway, your baseline is different. Um, so I think there is definitely a bit of that, like the physiological explanation for introversion. It makes a lot of sense to me. Did you, did that make sense to you when reading it? Do you buy into that argument? Yeah, like I guess I. it seemed like a very, immediately like the argument jumped out at me and I have referred to it a number of times in say like in you know 
for personal use, I guess I would say, like in trying to explain my own behavior to others or just to myself, um, I've referred to the argument. So to the extent that it's quite useful for me, I've tried to hold it a little bit at arm's length, mm. like just for fear of like, I haven't, you know, actually fact checked the science in it too much. Mm. Um, as you're well aware, like a lot of the science referenced in nonfiction books can be uh, glossed over. Yeah. Um, but with that said, I fully trust Susan Cain and <laughs> significant and <love> yeah, romantic <laughs> feelings for her. her. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we shouldn't diverge away too far from um, so effective altruism. That was c- that sparked from the division of labor idea between. Mm. Yeah, so you're going to be most effective by thinking rationally and utilizing your skills and natural characteristics to say for example like create some software that will be able to be scaled out into countries that will affect millions of people by 0.1 of a percent that's for example going to be where you might be most effective whereas someone else might be most effective by really leveraging their personable skills or their want to help people on a ground level um and i also think an interesting piece to put into play there is the reward like what you're getting reward from like they might get a lot of reward from doing that whereas like uh i don't know for me personally i don't get a lot of reward from people like verbally Oh, I don't know if that's the case, actually. I don't know. Did you want to go off anything of that? Yeah, I guess it's really difficult to work out, obviously, where the truth is on these matters. So I'm very sympathetic to that argument that, say, building the software is really useful. Obviously, because, say, my my personal proclivities are in that direction. Like I want to believe that is a productive way to do good, which justifies me say not going down to see Mrs. Jones down the road. Um, So I'm very sort of sympathetic to that argument. I don't know how true it is though, but I guess it's sort of, I think there's a, a very similar kind of phenomenon in just, Like, it's kind of like how, say, uh, you know, like Michael Jordan is revered for being a fantastic basketballer, but, like, Mm. there was a team that gave him the ability to be a fantastic basketballer. Or, Mm. um, like, one of the... I'm not sure, again, where the science is on this matter, but I believe sort of one of the theories of, like, genius is you need, say... You need to possess an IQ that's one standard deviation above average, but it's like you don't need to be, you know, hitting the 145, 150 mark. It's like what you need is that 115 to 120 Mm. and then a stable home environment that allows you to focus intensely on specific problems Mm. or something like that. Like, yeah, like the 140 IQ is just completely eradicated by divorcing parents and you know drug addicted sibling or something like that Mm. um so i I guess the 
those things were connected in my mind. But Mm -hmm. I I guess what I'm saying is like we attribute sort of like utility to just like very specific things and not to others. Um, And or like in a very sort of in a parallel again, uh, I can't remember where I was reading this recently, but obviously in one of the computer books that I'm reading, um, basically about how like we credit the inventor, like the person who invented something tends to be the person who puts the final 1% that on it that makes it work. Whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, Thomas Edison say invented a ton of these things and we think of him as like building them from ground up, but it's just mm-hmm. like the general like engineering principles existed before he did, like mm. the mathematics of it, the, we, we, like, you know, communication devices had been developed prior to he did. It's just like, oh, mm. he put the bits together that eventually made the telephone or something like mm. that or the light bulb. Um, I think Matt Ridley was talking about that. Yeah, it's probably, I think it's probably a pretty well-established phenomenon, but it probably was. That um, was like the, I think it was like one of, 20 or something people that uh whatever invented or came across the light bulb yeah it's like we see a lot of um uh like things being uh invented uh at the same time in like completely different isolated sort of areas um or like calculus sort of being independently sort of discovered um like Newton and someone else like at about mm. the same time and they weren't in sort of um, communication. Interesting. So I guess what I'm, I'm saying there is like there is a glorification of mm. certain things and the glorification is potentially not the right... Like, yeah, how much glory is associated with something is not the correct measure for how useful or true something is so to sort of sorry like tie all Mm. that together it's like geniuses are sort of Mm. uh held up on a pedestal for their iq or their artistic talent or something like that Mm. whereas it's like that was um you know that was a component of what made them them but it was probably yeah their home environment or something like that yeah um or, you know, Michael Jordan, really obsessive and, like, he's held held up on a pedestal for being, like, you know, I'll outwork anyone. But it's, like, you know, the team that sort of could... The, the four other players on the court on Michael Jordan's team that could equalise the five other players mm. on the other team that allowed Michael Jordan to be everything added on top of that and shine. This is an interesting point like how it relates to the altruism point. So it's not necessarily like, uh, for lack of a better term, two different sides. So it's not like the bottom 50% aren't doing good because they can't, whatever, like no no moral judgment, just they can't. Whereas the top 50%, if they are, they're doing good. It's like, uh, you know, almost like, this we or they or yeah they're standing on the shoulders of these other people doing the other work sort of like you're saying like we have the ability to do a podcast and work in 
good job <laughs> and uh, work in, you know, jobs that we love because, um, yeah, because other people are teaching kids and being police officers and doing jobs that we don't want to do. Um, whereas, yeah, again, it is like quite a symbiotic relationship. Whereas like, uh, yeah, again, like I think it's, uh, I just like coming back to the point that it taking the, taking the heroicism out of it and taking the moral superiority out of doing good. I think that is an important thing to do is take the moral superiority out of it. Yeah. I, I really like this. Uh, really like this. And the example I'll use is you mentioned like you have the perception that say like I'm quite a charitable, caring person. And like I think if you asked people close to me, well like, you know, it obviously depends who you, but put it this way. I think like, as you know, like I think the world of like my mum, my nan, my sister, like all of my family are predominantly great and like, but it's the fact that, like, to me, like, mum is that, like, highly charitable person. It's like, I can come and sit here on a Saturday morning, you know, and talk about these big grand sort of things with you because of, like, everything she has invested mm. to make my life okay. Like, mm. yeah, I don't know. So, it's like, to a degree, like, I'm doing the, the thing that's glorified, whereas it's it's her who deserves the glory, I think. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure how that maps onto what I, th I think that's sort of related to what you were getting at. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, again, like, um, it's speaking about division of labor thing. Like, as you said, it's like, she is, you know, for like I, I love mum for sure but it's like she's not set up to think like abstract thoughts she's mm. very much mm. like how is someone feeling emotionally how can I attend to that like mm. she has a skill set whereas like I have none of those things <laughs> and <laughs> but yeah, the glorifying point is an interesting one like have you been thinking about that recently uh yeah to the extent that I think about everything yeah <laughs> What a question. Have you been thinking about X, obviously? Um, do you think that is like a similar... Because I haven't put it in that terms, but I'm just thinking right now, like, is that along a similar vein as moral superiority? I guess it kind of is, right? Possibly. Uh, let me say this. What I've... In the past, I've probably... Okay, currently I think acts and behaviours that are glorified are not one-to-one -one perfect of which acts should be glorified if X is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably related to signalling, but I guess like, yeah, as let's just take the thing of like, well, not even signaling, but like signaling would play into it somewhere where, you know, with the goal of wanting to do, say, the most good for the most amount of people, whatever, mm. there are going to be some acts that are glorified about that. And 
there's probably a better act to be like for however many whatever the glorified act is there's mm. probably a variant of that or something else um that would more directly contribute to the effect that you're trying to have and thus you should be somewhat ambivalent to where the glory is mm. and again maybe i'm just sort of circling effective altruism sort of principles here but mm. um that's a really good point yeah yeah, yeah that yeah, we should also just touch on a little bit about how, like, which again lays within effective altruism, but how much evidence and data should play into, uh, I guess, what good to do or where the good can be. Um, because I guess it sort of comes back to, like, why, why we're doing the things that we're doing, like I was speaking about before, like, is it for, and maybe this is where the glorifying and moral superiority doesn't map. Is it for the feeling of moral superiority or is it the feeling of, or like external moral superiority, aka being glorified by others? Um, what was I going to say? Like why do we do good? Which, which of those is the primary cause? Is that what you're asking? Um, yeah, anyway, just sort of going back to like getting rid of the glorifying or like acting ambivalently regardless of where the glory holds uh, and and I guess why. So I think maybe I'll just sort of lay out what I do think. I think one, it makes sense to pay attention to what the evidence does say insofar as you can do that, which isn't so easy. Um, again, this sort of is circling back to your characteristics or your proclivities to certain things. Someone for you, for example, will be paying attention towards more effective ways um, that may be more data-driven or evidence-based, whereas someone else, for example, might be paying attention towards okay, like what is the immediate benefits that I can see manifest from the actions that I'm doing? And that's where they may be drawn towards soup kitchens or whatever it may be, seeing Mrs. Jones. So I think it does make sense to pay attention to the evidence. Uh, I think it, I'm not sure how I feel about paying attention to your own feelings though. I think that's where I'm still in a gray area. Like I'm not sure... Insofar as you can, I'm not sure if it makes sense to completely detach or to try and detach what you're doing to how it feels. So, like, I think you should not worry so much about... Um, not worry so much about what you're doing being glorified and the, the moral superiority argument. Like, basically what I'm saying is I don't think you should do things because other people will think you're cool for doing them. That's undoubtedly going to be a byproduct, but I don't think that is the sole purpose. Not that it, <laughs> in a consequentialist manner, not that it matters if you're achieving the same consequences, but I think if you're acting on that, uh, on that drive, that could distort where you go. So let me clear that up a bit. I think... 
if you're doing something effective for the wrong reasons, quote-unquote wrong reasons, for moral superiority or for uh, the... Uh, what was the word we were using? For the glorification of things from other people. Um, I don't think that matters so much if you're doing something effective. But I think basing the things that you do off those reasons is probably going to distort what you do. Therefore, it's probably going to be ineffective. For example, like you're probably going to just uh, go and do the showiest thing and take photos of it and post it rather than do the effective thing, um, which is more than likely going to be aligned with not caring about what people think about it. I don't know. There was a lot in there, but I hope hope you got some of it. Yeah, I I certainly um, think I understood your train of thought. Uh, I guess it comes down to... I forget what the... uh, there's consequentialist, consequentialist. Sorry, and what's the deontology? Deontology is that sort of is that like bit. describing my like intentions? No, sorry. Like what? Yeah, deontolo- deontological ethics is just acting based on rules regardless of their consequences. So that was Kant. Yeah, I'm not sure if that maybe that is the sort of framework I'm thinking of, but it's just like. Uh, I guess I always just use kind of like the the drink driving kind of like example. It's like, put it this way. If I drink drive and I get home safely, like, was that an okay move? Like, mm. conse- from a consequentialist standpoint, we could say yes. And then the, the other framework that I'm forgetting the name of um, would probably say no. Or like bumping into someone. It's just like, I didn't mean to bump into you. Therefore, sort of the accidental bump that I gave you is excusable. Or from the consequentialist standpoint, it's like, no, like it's not okay because that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's kind of what you're kind of speaking about. It's like, and I remember hearing Sam Harris speak about this and he's like, he was essentially making the point that it's like both need to be considered. Just just Mm. like you can't completely excuse behavior even if it didn't result, like even if it did result in a good outcome or didn't result in a bad outcome because someone's intentions, um, or maybe, yeah, maybe it's just the, an intention, intentionalist or intentionalism or something like that. Um, whatever, uh, because someone's intentions, are predictive of their future behavior. Yeah, that's what I w- was going to just add in there, that like, that it sort of is just consequentialist in the end. If you, again, like coming back to this broadening the scope thing, like that moral framework, so the idea to not act, uh, to not categorize things as wrong or right based on the intention, I feel like is almost just consequentialist anyway. Because you're thinking, the, the thinking is, it's like, well, it's like, it's almost like Kant's thing. It's like the categorical imperative. Well, it's like, okay, what if everyone were to do this? Well, then what are the consequences of that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, like, I'm, I'm basically, no, I, I agree with you, I think is all I'm saying. Um, so to maybe like tie a bow around that, it's 
yes, you probably should be where the glory is is probably a good reference point for like good things to do. Um, but is a good, it's probably like a good reference point, not great, not perfect. Um, Hmm. like I guess what I'm saying there is like the wisdom of crowds a bit. Hmm. Like there is some wisdom of the crowd, but, uh, it's an imperfect problem-solving device. So, yeah, to some degree, you shouldn't be perfectly correlated with the social perception of glory. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that you said you're not sure how personal feelings play into it. I think that is the sort of the gap that personal feelings must somewhat address like if i'm going to ignore the crowd to some extent i do need to be guided by what i think is the right thing to do Mm. and you can then have the recursive thought of but does this actually make me feel like do i get reward from this Mm. um and I'm not sure how well you can disassociate those two things, but okay. So yeah, I want to. Oh, I do want to like get your thoughts on a little bit of crinkle that utilitarianism has in my mind is the idea with suffering. Um, maybe it's just getting a little bit semantic with it. But one thing that I was thinking about with utilitarianism is that, like, it's all based around suffering. Like, that's what people talk about. They talk about uh, avoiding suffering, moving closer towards something, well-being, pleasure, the opposite of suffering, whatever, whatever that may be. The issue that I take with that is, like, I guess it's just maybe it's just hard to nail down what one means by suffering. But then two, it's just like this idea again of pulling back the scope and like, okay, one's pers- one person's suffering is perhaps another person's meaning or suffering in a micro sense can easily be extrapolated as meaning in a macro sense. To take a quite a banal example is physical suffering. I mean, exercise is, again, a banal example, but that is, depending on what your operative definition of suffering is, like, that is some sort of physical suffering. Um, Unless suffering is a specific definition that has something to do with no utility. Uh But basically the point I'm getting at is that I'm not sure if suffering is the right way to think about utilitarianism. No, I would probably agree. I would, at least for my own model of utilitarianism, it's probably, to use the preferences term, it's like uh, acting in ways that allows the you know the most amount of people to most reliably move towards their preferences Hmm. um 
So I guess that's sort of, that's not taking the autonomy of the individual out of it. I don't think it's, it's kind of like, yeah, each individual will have different preferences. It's, it's kind of like, I guess, maybe kind of like a, a libertarian version of mm. uh, utilitarianism, just mm. constructing a world where people can sort of like move freely and safely Towards their own preferences. Yeah. Whereas, like, if... However, if there is... Say there's 25% of the population who is... Uh, some of their preference is... Well, like... Say, like, white supremacy, to use kind of, like, an example. Mm. It's, like, a non-trivial amount of the population has a preference for... Basically, interfering with the preferences of another portion of the pop population like that's kind of where some kind of intervention from a utilitarian perspective needs to be like mm. some kind of yes yeah, a policy that intervenes and prevents that from happening while not completely uh like not completely avoiding or failing to care about the preferences of say white supremacists but it's like okay if doing that immoral act is like preference number one, like mm. maybe we can bump you down to preference number three. Mm. Um, yeah, you hold like meetings and groups and blah, 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 and you talk amongst yourself, that keeps you happy. But like now rather than say the other portion of the population who they were impacting, who was being pushed down to like preference 99 out of 100, like, mm. you know, just really suffering, I guess, at that point. Um, they can now be allowed to live at sort of like average of like preference 10. Like, mm. yeah, sure, they're probably not as happy as possible. But yeah, I guess I guess it's kind of those balancing of preferences that I think mm. utilitarianism kind of speaks. Like, it. how does that make sense to you in relation to the suffering argument? Yeah, that makes sense a lot. I like the idea and I. that's probably how I think about it, like heavily libertarian influence with taking into account um, utilitarianism, well, it's not like, again, like we have spoken about, like it can't, it's not going to work exclusively because there are those, I guess, edge cases or crinkles in the framework where I don't think it's a good idea for one person to suffer for the happiness of everyone. Like that novel walking away from something like the utilitarian novel where it, it's like basically a thought experiment in a novel where there's like a boy suffering in a city for the for the happiness of every single person in that city and it's you know it's that pull some people walk away some people stay anywho uh but i think that uh the problem of how to weigh the certain utilities is the biggest problem with utilitarianism. But again, I think that's probably just... Um, like a lot of the time, I think that's maybe like a distraction for like not doing the obvious right... I think I made this point last time, but if there, there's sometimes obvious right things to do, and because, like, you don't know how to weigh the utilities of different sentient beings, um, 
then people don't act at all. And I guess this is part of the, maybe it's part of the issue that people have with acting is like um, getting lost in the weeds of of the theory or of the absolute best way to do it. Um, gosh, I'm kind of losing my thinking right there. Let me let me jump in, <laughs> please. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how consistent your perception of the inconsistency is. Mm. So let's let's take sort of like you know the dunce in a classroom sort of a you know someone who is a clown for the benefit of others or something mm. like that like you know the boy in the city or or whatever um it is not i don't think i think we, we touched on this last time i made this point but maybe it needs readdressing mm. um it cannot just be calculated as the like the number of people and like it's kind of how much say the person who is performing you know degrading acts for the benefit of others um say that is making them experience like negative 100 welfare Mm. like that is they hate it and the other people who are experiencing, who are watching, like are experiencing, say, like plus 10 welfare from mm. it. Um, you know, you could say, well, like the the mathematics of that still balances where, or it's like, you know, that's a good thing to do because like say there's 100,000 people who are mm. experiencing plus eight, uh, sorry, plus 10, whereas this person is doing, feeling negative 100. Mm. But you then need to sort of do like, the is that the local peak though like is that Mm. the local maxima it's like okay so say maybe these people can find i don't know maybe maybe the maths will actually break down when you use populations of that extent but it's like if those people can so easily you know get plus nine welfare doing something different yeah maybe they all lose 10 mm. percent welfare but this person goes from negative 100 to plus five because they can then start sweeping to earn their money or rather than you know doing humanly degrading acts then i still think that is like the difficulty in doing the good act or like how difficult ah uh, sorry yeah, the ease at which other people could still experience their welfare mm. and the benefit, the si- significant, like, exponential benefit, basically, that this person could experience in their own welfare by not doing it, I think still says that the utilitarian thing is for them, for that person not to be doing the degrading thing. Mm. Like, um, yeah, like, do you... Do you mm. think that is true or or do you think, say, like, utilitarianism says that, like, he should be doing that thing? Uh, I think strict utilitarianism theory would say 
that they ought to do the the thing but again like that's where i like i have troubles with it you have troubles with it a lot of people have issues with it like this is why like peter singer <laughs> he's come up he's come up against a decent bit of backlash in his career more recently for um not advocating for but like paying lip service to ideas of uh, like euthanasia or like um not infanticide but not giving life to kids that might be heavily severely disabled um because again like he is quite from what i understand quite a strict utilitarian and so to go back to the point you're making yeah i think that like i think that what you're saying makes sense and i would agree with it because i think it's highlighting and um fixing an issue that utilitarianism has like utilitarianism isn't a complete concept and we know that because it's yeah okay so let me let me try this on you then do we think like the correct application of utilitarianism and this is essentially i guess what i say when i'm thinking of utilitarian or sorry what i'm thinking when i say utilitarianism Hmm. is basically like there should be some kind of like uh maximal suffering or like minimal welfare cap where it's like even if it would result in like absolute gains in welfare experienced of the majority, mm. like the total number of experienced welfare would still go up. There is some still some kind of cap where like an individual's welfare cannot be pushed below mm. for the benefit of the others. Mm. So I think that's one important aspect and probably something that maybe helps the math on that work out to a greater extent is that there's the curve to which people experience welfare is logarithmic, where it uh, plateaus off. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the first 50% of welfare, like, you know, the first 50% of welfare measured on one axis, axis, like, it Mm -hmm. is actually the 90% of experience of, like, psychological welfare. And then they're, Mm -hmm. like the 50% you experience after that is the final 10%, like diminishing Mm. returns. Mm, mm. So given the fact that like, say a bunch of people can lose 1% and that 1% is actually even a smaller fraction because of the diminishing returns Mm. effect, that allows someone who should, who shouldn't be experiencing like negative 100 welfare to Mm. climb back up massively. Like closer to that threshold you were speaking about. Yeah, like is that kind of... Do those two concepts like... Do you think fix utilitarianism mostly? Yeah, I do like that. I would just probably say that I don't know... Like I'm thinking more rules-based with the... With the how much suffering we allow or allowing suffering. So you sort of said... um, and maybe you do want to clear this up, you sort of said that people shouldn't be going below a certain level of suffering or they should be at some welfare cap or threshold uh, that they shouldn't go below that in order to improve other people's. Whereas, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking more 
this is where like a, I guess like a deontological perspective would come into it. Maybe I'm thinking more, there's just certain rules and things that shouldn't be done rather than like levels or amounts of suffering. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. So are you trying to essentially, are we just coming at this from like, I'm coming from a bottoms up perspective and you're coming from like a top down, like this, uh, you're sort of say more about that. <laughs> uh, like, well, yeah, like you're trying to, I guess, work out some kind of like, uh, maybe like a governing system or framework. Mm. Whereas like, I guess, I'm probably more just speaking at the level of like how should an individual like think about like whether it's the right thing to do or I, mm. yeah I don't know I'm not even sure we're actually that far apart but yeah maybe not I was just sort of saying like that it's probably a good idea to have certain rules that just shouldn't be um, like rules for behavior that just shouldn't be broken regardless of how much regardless of the consequences. So forgetting the consequentialist approach. So forgetting about the consequences of your behavior, there's probably just certain things that you shouldn't do. Um, whereas again, obviously that doesn't extrapolate out to the whole framework. I, I, I believe a large part of the framework should be utilitarian, but then on certain fringe cases, like this, basically in my head, this is how I solve that thought experiment. Even though the city is happy, I still believe that like making that one person suffer in the basement for the rest of their life is one of those rules of thumb that we just shouldn't um, exploit or that we just shouldn't break. Um, whereas like maybe something else uh, would be okay for the for the benefit of everyone uh, because it's not breaking that rule of like. Um, using using people as means to an end rather than allowing people to be ends in themselves. Yeah, so when you say those things, like are we essentially speaking about this, like when I say putting a cap on, mm. say like, I guess when I say like put a cap on the the kind of wealth or suffering that someone can experience in order for the gain of others. Like I'm saying, if that cap is breached, mm. that moves from being like the right mm. thing from the wrong to the wrong thing. Yeah. So like <laughs> to you, that is one of those rules. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe I'll just get your thoughts on this. Like on a personal level, what do you think um, is a permissible amount of say like suffering or sacrifice for other people and maybe take that where you will like practical or philosophical sort of speaking to this idea of utilitarianism and again like deontological ethics of like okay you should probably do some good with your life but like how much? So I think we've sort of I think we've sort of established like who should do good. Would you agree? We've established that. Yeah. So I, I would say 
so people who should do good are probably like, or you should feel greater pressure to do good if you're in the wealthy 50% as opposed to the uh, less wealthy 50%. Is that kind of what we're saying? Like that's yeah. obviously one factor, yeah. but that should be a weighty one because like mm. money is money is the medium through which we exchange, you know, welfare choices and, and stuff like that. Like basically all goods mm. services. Um, so yeah, money isn't everything, but that that's a significant contributor to that pressure. Is that what we're yeah. agreeing on? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So that's who should do good. Um, and then probably our framework for who like attending suffering and like what is suffering and what needs addressing in comparison mm. to what's okay. Or like, obviously like we would want everything good to be better. Okay. But like mm. where, where do the problems lie? Mm. I think something like, like Maslow's hierarchy might be a really good place to start. Um, mm. It's obviously, or it's like typically talked about in regards to sort of like individual enlightenment, like in, or like, transcending sort of individual needs but like used at the level of the individual Mm. um from a positive aspect but i think it's that should sort of still be considered like baseline like you know i guess a general probably autonomy maybe like let's start there like when someone has an ability to be mostly autonomous in their life like Mm. then uh, say society's obligations to them drops off quite significantly. It's mm. an interesting point. So that might mean like probably like work, like because mm. again, like mo- money is the medium through. It's funny how like I have such a, you and I both have very quite low interest in money, but like see mm. the, the utility of it in it, obviously. Um, mm. Like when one getting people into work that allows them to earn money, that allows them to pay rent, put food on the table, do things like that. I think that for the most part, like that trims off societal society's obligations to that person. If that person is Mm. on the street, they don't have a job. They have some kind of disability that is hindering them from getting job, uh, getting a job or like that is creating a hurdle that is basically like, rather severe given they lucked out or like Mm. didn't win the genetic lottery or like yeah they won the genetic Mm. uh, they lost whatever you know what i'm trying (laughs) to say yeah like they got really unlucky they Um, won the genetic wooden spoon yeah that's Mm. the one um have this interest just quickly i like have this interesting visual that just popped into my head when you said that of like it's a line that you cross of like, okay, you start out where everyone needs to help you and society needs to help you, like your parents or whatever. You're going through like the state, your parents, everyone's shaping and forming and helping you. And I guess hopefully the goal is that you cross that line and jump over the other side to then flip it around and okay, now you can start helping other people. And I guess that's maybe like, sort of what we're talking about here a lot is that passing that threshold, maybe like that's where the median 
the median wage is or median income is passing that threshold um, where you can start to turn it around and become a part become a part of helping others or helping society but yeah that was just an interesting like visual that came into my head as you were saying that yeah no i I think that is the the correct like way to think about it and yeah so it's i guess like you know say you've got a reference point somewhere at the median like the middle of you know all all scores and the further you are from the median probably the greater um you know responsibility or obligation you have so it's like if you're you know, if you're in the 99th percentile, you have a massive obligation um, and probably, you know, maybe should be trying to help the the first percentile. Mm. Whereas if you're at the 55th percentile, then maybe you need to... I don't know if this is true, but, like, maybe you should be focusing more on your efforts on the 45th percentile. Like, but Oh, interesting. I'm not sure. Sorry, I'm, I'm saying mm. I'm not sure if that part yeah. is true, but it's just that, like, your obligation probably isn't as high just using this obviously like one index then that needs to be then considered against you know personal characteristics yeah. it's like if you're in the one percentile and you're not charitable at all versus you're in the one percentile and or say the the tenth percentile and very charitable like mm. division of labor as we've discussed um so that like the further you move from the mean or the median in any direction mm the greater your obligation or probably expectation should be. Mm. Um, And then society overall is hopefully set up in a way where that sort of equal pull on every either side of the median will allow the mean to rise over time or the average to Mm. experience of welfare. Like it's not this sort of zero sum game. It's like, we're trying to divvy up the pie so that it's mm. better experienced by all while there's some growth of the pie going on. Mm. And that like that growth um, relies upon that division and people on either side of it playing their part, sort of like we were speaking about before. So like it's not just that there's people above, for lack of a better term, or uh, the people giving financially it's not just that they're the ones doing the good it's like actually you know everyone's sort of doing their thing because and doing good because the people giving financially are not really able to do that unless they have like the infrastructure around them to be able to do that like you're not going to be able to give financially if you've got to be a garbage man not that there's anything wrong with that but it's just like people have got to do certain different things um like in terms of practicality like what on a personal level like what do you think it is okay for people to forego in order to give um in order to live live in alignment with these values um so like given that you are someone that meets this criteria that we've sort of spoken about um what is it permissible that you should do what ought you to um well like if you've crossed a monetary threshold like you probably should 
pay in sort of like return the favor in a monetary um, standpoint, I guess. Um, if that's what you have in abundance, then yeah. Um, abundance is obviously mm-hmm. a strong word, but mm. um, yeah, from a practical standpoint, I'm not sure really. Yeah. Really not sure. Like, I guess this is, this is where the sort of the automation and the money thing makes it easy. I don't think, I don't think you should ever get out of the feeling of needing to do more. Like whatever you're doing, you probably should feel like you need to do more. So Hmm. there's that. Um, I just want to, like, I do just want to add to that though, that like, yes, but also that is the crippling, that is the, that is the blockage for people getting started. I feel like most of the time that's the blockage for people getting started is that it's, I I think it's along the same lines of like, uh, what good is this even going to do? Yeah. Sorry. Like I do completely agree that what, I should have clarified is like the pressure you feel to do something should significantly decrease if you are doing something, Hmm. but it's like, it's, uh, it's asymptotic. Like it's never, Hmm. it's never going to hit the line. Hmm. Like the whole feeling of like, Oh fuck. Like this is never, like it's never enough kind of a thing. Like Hmm. I've always got to do more like, yeah, like live with that. And I think that's important to learn to live with that. Um, or maybe not learn to live with it. Like it's not something that it exists for a good reason, I guess is Mm. what I'm saying. It's like, it's not something you would be sociopathic, I guess, to switch that off. Yeah. Um, so that's a good thing, but it's also good that like you can do things and have that pressure lessened. Mm. Like, yeah, I guess maybe think of that as kind of like, you know, that's like your your charity deficit. It's like if you're mm. doing nothing, like, yeah, you're feeling a massive, like, charity deficit. Whereas, like, once you're doing something, you know, that maybe lops off 50% of it. It's like, yeah, you could still do more, but it's like you're still doing more than the person is doing nothing. Mm. And then it's kind of, like, very stepwise in that regard. Um, does that sort of clarify a little bit? Or, like... Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um... But so maybe then let me follow this up with like the the fact that it's never enough, I think should, the fact you're doing something, but it's never enough doesn't mean it shouldn't create like freedom for you in some regards. Like, okay, so we've spoken about division of labor and like personal proclivities. Once you're say, doing something charitable on some kind of like long-term basis, then I think you should feel more, uh, you should feel more okay, like pursuing your career or something like Mm. that with a greater focus, because then like, um, you know, you might create things or like, Mm. you know, say scientific breakthroughs or like, you know, you might do things that like substantially improve national GDP or like what, like Mm. there's, 
there's some kind of pr- productivity and good still coming out of what you do. It's mm. like even on the, the day-to-day basis of like, say you're a school teacher, like, yeah, that, that's a good thing. And people are experiencing like welfare on, yes, a shorter term basis, but it's like it's still experience of welfare. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, like addressing the other side of the the way that effective altruism is commonly misperceived. So the coin that people often wrongly perceive it as is that all they care about is evidence-based giving to the most important parts. And they're like, at least this is the, the incorrect caricature of effective altruism is that all they care about is, you know, people getting malaria or worms in sub-Saharan Africa, whereas they neglect their own community. Again, that's not the right way to think about effective altruism. I think the way is, or I think the correct way is, uh, and I guess you were just sort of speaking to it, is doing what you can with that um, for whatever reason, to know that you've played your part uh, or, yeah, to really make some impact. Doing what you can with that, that being... Uh, effective altruism, giving to the most needy in the most effective ways, and then also addressing the other side of the coin, which is um, like the community aspect or dealing with your family or your friends, and giving in those um, giving in those domains as well. Like basically, I don't think it has to be one or the other and again i think this is probably where a lot of people use it as an excuse they're like uh like i you know i do a lot for my community or like i'm not going to give to charity because i can like a common argument against it is like why would i give to people across the other side of the world when i've got kids to give to instead and then a thought may be like okay, well, if my kid wants this, am I always going to think, well, you know, I could give it to charity in another country. Um, and there's that, therein lies that tension. But again, I just think that's a, a, a wrong way to think about it and some sort of like subconscious excuse maybe or bias to justify not doing something maybe. Yeah, I think this is... Um I guess the way I think about it is like it's personal finance. I'll use personal finance example. It's like the sort of effective altruism movement is like investing. Okay. It's like people are kind of like, why would I invest money? Cause I don't even have enough money for what I want now. Hmm. Whereas like, but it's like that can, that money can do more good for you if you put it, in you know an index fund or something mm. like that it's like yeah it's like it's sort of like addressing that the long term and the short term or the the local and the global needs mm. like um yeah so i think yeah you, you need to do a mix of both as we've said and yeah i guess like i'm not sure maybe that is like the extent of my analogy but i, I mm. think that just does explain at least how I need to understand it. It's like, cool, putting that 10% away for the future or for, you know, 
global welfare. I re- I know it's going to go a long way. It's going to do good things. It can tick over in the background, and I'm not going to mm. to need to worry about it to the same extent. I also think like uh, a really important concept to take on board with this, and like quite a well known well known one is the hedonic treadmill, and just the like that what you just said brought it up it's like well i don't really have enough to pay for what i want slash need now but i think it's it's really just being able to recognize that okay like there's two ways to be rich earn more or want less like you can be rich on you can be rich on the median like which is genuinely how i feel at the moment um Again, like not to get too personal with it, but like coming from like humble beginnings, like this for me feels like, like quote unquote, a dream. Like I feel rich just being like somewhere around the median income coming from where I've come from. So I think it's like uh, just being aware of and adjusting your wants and needs slash being aware of, of your adjusting wants and needs. Um, I think that is an important piece because that common thought of like, oh, I can't even, I can't even afford what I need now, quote unquote, need now. Or it's like, perhaps that's just, and it probably is, just the hedonic treadmill working at its best. Um, whereas if you're just really aware to what your baseline needs are, uh, and not, like, we're obviously not saying you don't need to be um, like a monk about life. But I think some aspect of that is highly useful taking into account. It's not to completely disregard your own pleasures, but again, to circle back around to the animals and animal liberation, it's to, it's just to um, clear up how much you're valuing different things, I think. So you should value an animal's life over your own taste buds, I think. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. Um, I think the hedonic treadmill is a massively important concept in all of this. Um, and we could possibly say that like, one of the most charitable or altruistic things that you can do moral is pay some attention to your preferences and like adjust and calibrate them over time. Mm. Um, yeah, like I, I think that's very important. Um, like if you're, if you're not addressing your obsessive need for more money and bigger cars, then like potentially you are part of the problem. Hmm. Um, yeah, like your, mm. your charity doesn't need to start with going over and donating $10,000. Like Mm. your charity starts with needing a little bit less yeah wow that's uh that's actually a really profound point <laughs> that's really good uh and i was just gonna say like the hedonic treadmill also like acts in mysterious ways <laughs> like for us our hedonic treadmill is books <laughs> so like yeah even if it's not the um it's not the archetypal or typical flashy flamboyant materialistic stuff everyone's got their own hedonic treadmill so and it's just a moving goalpost so you just got to be i think it's just like a process of 
constantly just being aware of it because like the second you recalibrate and readjust you're like oh now i'm not say spending unnecessary money on this that isn't really bringing me any meaning or happiness or whatever but it's really just shifted somewhere else um yeah so it can be quite deceptive yeah no i i agree like that was <laughs> when you were speaking about the the hedonic treadmill all i was thinking was just like amazon book orders so. <laughs> there's my treadmill jump on baby um let me i'll ask a final question hmm. i've been speaking with uh you know my friend Michael, who i've Mm. told you about um and we often have this sort of like back and forth debate over like we just use jeff bezos as kind of like the the person to consider like you know he isn't the problem isn't only about him but it's like so when it comes to doing say like good how do we perceive someone like jeff bezos Mm. who does you know a lot of or who has a lot of money, like should he be paying substantial amounts of tax? Should he be trusted with that money? Um, Like, I guess the tax question is only one. There's a lot of questions embedded Mm -hmm. in that. Or like maybe we'll use Bill Gates as an example. It's Mm -hmm. like we compare Bill Gates and say Bezos. Um, Say they both have lots of money. Um, Some people would say, tax them massively like they should be giving you know after $150,000 they should be paying like 50 cents on the dollar Mm. to the government and then letting the government do good with that money um do you think that argument holds weight or do you think like say I personally think it's completely reasonable for someone like Bill Gates to be like I have shown certain aptitudes for addressing these problems. Like I think, you know, private organizations have better incentives than uh, government ones. Mm. And therefore I'm going to set them up so that they can do, you know, more charitable altruistic work without the bureaucracy, like that kind Mm. of stuff. So I think that's all, that's all completely fair enough. Well, one, I think like, I think Bill Gates like deserves massive respect. Like as Mm. you know, that I believe, um, I think he's done some of the most good for the world that we've seen in ages. Um, So I guess like when you compare someone like maybe Jeff Bezos, who hasn't done as much good with say his fortune from what, at least from what I understand, like he might, like Mm -hmm. I I don't know his personal finances, but let's say for sake of argument, he's not doing a ton. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's like a bit of a taxation the idea that like the super wealthy should be taxed massively is also a charitable question of like, well, Bill Gates may do a ton of good with that money. I don't know. You've, I've sort of laid out a bunch of random points. Mm. Like, do you have any yeah, intuitions there? Um, so there's a lot of things that come up there. Like one is the, the moral desserts claim is, uh, and yeah, Michael Sandel lays this out beautifully. It's the, well, okay, well, like how much do you really deserve that? Um, sort of speaks to what we were talking about before about genius and uh, creativity. You're only able to do that insofar as you're in amongst the infrastructure that 
allows that certain skill to flourish. So a common example is Bill Gates is probably a good example. 300, 200, 1,000 years ago, Bill Gates probably, is fair to say, would not have been one of the top people in society where there wasn't the infrastructure to rely on his genius and IQ. Um, the, his skill set would not have flourished in a hunter-gatherer society, maybe. It might just be that he's um, naturally very good at pattern recognition or something and he would have been a great hunter, who knows. <laughs> the point being that moral deserts is a serious um, it's a serious issue that how much do people really deserve what they have earned um, and that, that is presupposing that they have earned it morally, um, ethically, properly. They haven't like broken any big rules or broken the law or anything. Like uh, the, the great common example is... Uh, we'll say like the, just the finance industry or like there's... Yeah, I was going to take the other side. The Harry Potter author. Oh, J.K. Rowling? Yeah. Mm. So, you're saying like she's earned her fortune? Yeah, like that's just like the perfect example. No matter how you spin it, like she didn't exploit anyone, break any rules, but she's a multi-billionaire. Like in my eyes, that's capitalism and the system working as it should and well is rewarding for those. Like again, like, let's put aside free will um rewarding effort and agency and autonomy to make a living and the free market like she has she insofar as anyone can have moral desserts she has moral desserts um so that's like one thing i would say that's a hard issue to deal with for some people um the other thing was like the incentives problem which is like basically the tax issue. If you tax people more, there's not going to be as much incentives to make more because it's just going to get all taxed away uh, or largely taxed away. And if there aren't people pushing the limits to create big companies like Amazon or Microsoft, then there's a lot of people that miss out on a lot of things like is as much shit as people give Jeff Bezos, I imagine everyone who does has bought off Amazon and by virtue of that experienced some of the pleasure or uh, the utility of his invention where at the same time they're, you know, talking bad about him. Uh, so I, I, I do tend to lean towards the, again, like coming back to the libertarian roots of my moral framework is giving people the agency to um, be able to earn what they can ethically in a free market and giving them mostly the rewards for those efforts financially while having some sort of redistributive tax while not being too much to disincentivize people. So I think like a 90% tax over million or whatever is probably absurd and that's going to be too much to dis and that will disincentivize people like if you if you realize for that extra 100 hours of work that you're doing to take a arbitrary number that you were only going to keep 10 percent of that income from that work 
I highly doubt a lot of people would do that. So that's the incentive point. I think it's important to keep the incentives in place for people to want to become billionaires. Peter Singh actually had an interesting debate at the Oxford Union about this. The The debate was like, is it immoral to be a billionaire? Um, and basically, that's way too like cut and dry to put it. Um, where like semantically, it just doesn't make sense to say that it's immoral to be a billionaire. The point is... Maybe some of the time it's hard to say a lot of people are making their billions off the back of other people, um, particularly like in the finance industry. This is probably most prevalent where it's just like fast day trading. You're not actually, it's rent seeking. You're not actually providing any value for society, which is what capitalism should be about. It's just about, say, like arbitraging or playing with numbers um, where you're not providing any value. You're just trying to capitalize on differences in the system, I guess. That's probably not the right way to put it. Um, but the point being, you're not really capital, uh, you're not providing any real value for people. Um, but I don't think it's really immoral for anyone to be a billionaire if they've done so ethically. And I also, and I'll just finish on this, like I also think that you'll see a lot of the biggest billionaires today a lot of the richer people today are giving back a lot of their fortunes. Or maybe not a lot. I should be careful with that. But like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill and Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett. Again, I don't know what Jeff's doing, um, but he's trying to take us to Mars. <laughs> like they're, like I think Warren Buffett's pledged to give away 99% or 90%. Um, Zuckerberg's given away like $500 billion um, so again, like there is a lot of good that these people are doing for society. And again, like literally the products that they created in order to build their wealth, everyone has benefited from almost nearly everyone's on Facebook, nearly everyone's bought some, something off Amazon. It's quite hard to, at the same time, say that they're immoral for reaping the benefits of that. Yeah, I really do share um, your sentiments in that regard. Uh, like, I think the correct the correct way to look at it is that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos already did good for the world, say, by creating their mm. products. And it's just like, that is why I think, say, Bill Gates should be... Glor- I think he should be glorified. And, like, mm. that is the correct social move rather than taxed like significantly like he should be glorified for the additional charitable work that he's doing is like Mm. he has taken the benefits that he created for the world through his professional career and then spending them in altruistic Mm. endeavors um but yeah just because jeff bezos has a ton of money and people go people use calculations where like oh he would have to spend like $3,000 every second, you know, now until the end of his life to sort of use all that. Like, Mm. I think that kind of reasoning is actually just based on like human cognitive limitations. And like, Mm. well, it's like we've spoken before about like people, you can use numbers to justify anything. Mm. So there's that. And then the people, then how people go, oh, I can't even comprehend having that much money or like it's incomprehensible. Like, Mm. 
you know, when people are still on the street, why has he got that much money? And it's like, well, I think it's pretty fair to sit there as Jeff Bezos and go, well, like there's people on the street and the government has basically say like shown somewhat inadequacy in dealing with that problem. Mm. So excuse me if I'm not going to be, you know, willfully handing over Mm. my money. Um, So again, like I'm saying, like, I think he is fair in that assessment and that's okay, but it's like, that's why someone like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg um, or Warren Buffett should get the additional sort of like social status from Hmm. the above and beyond that they're doing. Like, Hmm. I don't think this is, taxation will obviously help, like improved policy is Hmm. never going to not help. But I think we spend so much time arguing about taxation and should be more concerned with like, people are still spreading, you know, conspiracy theories about Bill Gates. Like Mm. that's to me where like the social and moral damage is really existing. Mm. Just on the Bezos one, I actually did watch like a little bit of his, there was like a, a little bit of a movie about him or whatever on YouTube or something. Just thinking about the amount of jobs he's created though, (laughs) that's probably out of all those guys, that is probably, he's probably done like almost some somewhat of the most good yeah and it's like that i guess if we take my framework of like autonomy and whatever as being sort of like mm. the baseline for moral behavior like he has created autonomy sort mm. of for tremendous amounts of people um yeah or at least like working towards it yeah it's like when he goes like when he builds a a warehouse in a new area like say like some of those more middle um, middle of the country, northern United States areas that are just neglected, not like the coasts that get all the affluence and opportunity. Um, that's like a clearly a massive opportunity, but that's like a that's like a godsend for those areas because they literally get like thousands and thousands of jobs created just in that one opportunity. Um, yeah, so I would say I would just add that like that's. That's something that's massively overlooked with Bezos. And it just plays into the, look how much value that person is creating. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. Um, yeah, maybe we'll round it out there. Mm. Um, yeah, very all over the place conversation today, as, as I'm sure they all will be. Um, but I wouldn't mind returning to like, the wealth inequality um, Mm. topic in the future Mm. just because that that is pressing Um, it rolls on nicely from this I think yeah it's like when we look at say all of the welfare of conscious conscious beings um, you know that captures animals and we should be zooming Mm. in and focusing on them to an extent but it's like Mm. if we're just going to look at humans like wealth inequality is one of the massive things that holds people back from experiencing you know the best life they could Mm. yeah no definitely um so pulse like there's an interesting bit in sapolsky's book about that i think you might remember it's it's about like the the feeling of inequality not necessarily Mm. the 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 hard manifestation of it um but yeah no that sounds good i I agree um good conversation Thank thank you joshua 
Thanks for joining the conversation. If you would like to connect, please reach out through info at philosophyau.com. Thanks again and see you at the next episode.